Greetings. Today's message from Seeing Jesus in the Stories is the story about Naaman the leper. And remember, what we're doing here is that Jesus told his um, the people of his day that they study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you possess eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And so we certainly do not want to be guilty as were the enemies of Jesus, that we would not come to him for eternal life. We want to come to him and see him in the scriptures. We want to see the gospel. We want to understand what Jesus has done for us. And so let's read today's story about um, Naaman the leper from 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, let me just give you a little bit of background here. Um, Elisha is the prophet that follows after Elijah. And uh, Naaman is a servant in the country that is an enemy of Israel. And King Ahab has been killed, but his wife Jezebel is still around. And so Ahab's son is leading the nation. He's the king, as King Joram is his name, J-O-R-A-M. And he is the king that's in this story. So this is after Elijah has already gone up to heaven in the chariot. And um, Ahab has been taken care of. And so now we're in the last king who is the rule until Baal worship is destroyed. So Elisha is functioning as a prophet, and this story happens in the middle of that time frame. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him Yahweh had given victory to Aram. Notice how Yahweh is involved here in the sovereign role in uh, Naaman's life. Now, he was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. And we understand from the Bible that leprosy is both a, a real biological disease, but also a symbol for the uncleanness that comes in our lives through sin. And so it's a, it's a representative of that as well. But he was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a message to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. 
But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers in Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, washed and wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. And then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God, and he stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. And the prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but Yahweh. But may Yahweh forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Remen to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Remen, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from his chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, Two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman, and he urged Gehazi to accept them, and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. And he gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. And when Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house, and he sent the men away, and they left. And when he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes? or olive groves and vineyards, or flocks and herds, or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Father, thank you for this story. Help us to take warning from it. Help us to see your gospel at work. Help us to see our own sinfulness at work so that we can truly repent of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's some pretty interesting things in that story for sure. 
I wanted to just uh, make a few observations. We could probably spend quite a while talking about it. First of all, let me just say that the 10 talents of silver would weigh out to be 750 pounds of silver. And so when uh, Naaman gave Gehazi two talents, he gave him um, 75 pounds and 75 pounds. So he gave him two tenths of that. And so that would have been 150 pounds of silver to carry and then two sets of clothing. And so this was quite a treasure that Naaman had brought. And Gehazi just had quite a bit. That's why um, Naaman gave him a couple of servants to carry the silver on the way back. The other idea is that um, clothing in those days was very expensive, very handmade. Um, there was no, uh, you know, high production system. And so you couldn't just get clothes. And so clothing would last you for years and years and it would be very valuable. And so having two, uh, having 10 suits of clothing would have been a huge gift. And so when Naaman gave Gehazi two suits of clothing. He was giving him a lot. And so those are big treasures that Naaman brought. I just wanted to have you get a feel for how large the treasure was. The other thing I want you to see is the sovereign hand of God in this whole story. Look at how um, at the very beginning it said that God even gave um, Naaman success in his victories over Israel. And then there just happened to be this girl who happened to be captured by the uh, Arameans and over there in Naaman's um, house and this little girl happened to be kind enough to remind her master about the fact that there was a prophet that she knew about in, in Israel and uh, his name is Elisha that he could do things like cure the leprosy and so this little girl with childlike faith is the one who brings all of this about and God is leading in all of these things he, he brings um, Naaman as a witness against the king of Israel to show his unbelief and then works out all these things. And, and how kind it was that uh, Naaman had good servants that would help him and say, Father, you're, you're being way overreacting here. What if it was a simple thing he asked you to do? You'd do a great thing. And so if it weren't for his servants, Naaman would have been lost and not able to have his leprosy cured. So God's hand was in all of this. This was not an accident. It was a perfect plan of God. And Elisha knew all about it. I also want to point out that Naaman was willing to pay all that he had, all of this treasure, just to be healed. A person who has got leprosy is unclean and they're socially outcast. They cannot fellowship. They, they're, um, they're at risk of being uh, communicable to other people, pass the disease on. So people would say unclean, unclean, and refuse to hang out with a person who was leprous. And leprosy, again, as I mentioned, represents sin in their lives. And it's a disease that's insipid. It doesn't stay in one place. It gets worse and worse, and it, it spreads and brings death and destruction. And so um, Naaman was willing to pay a lot, to pay all to be healed. But sadly and ironically, Gehazi lost it all. He lost his health just to get a tenth of what Naaman was willing to give away. Naaman gave a bunch and was willing to give a bunch and never had to. And Gehazi was unwilling to go without and he received a punishment and he got all of Naaman's leprosy. So there's sort of a um, an interesting uh, turnaround on that. And then I also want you to notice Naaman's anger. He uh, he was so angry about the, the deal. Why the River Jordan? Why didn't he do some fancy? In his mind, he had worked it out how it would be, some big ceremony, some big uh, fancy thing that would be worthy of Naaman's honor. And honor would, uh, would be ascribed to Naaman. And it would be this big procedure. And, and Elisha won't even come out and talk to him. He just sends a message to him and says, Yeah, 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 just go down by the river seven times. I'm not even going to talk to you. 
And so Naaman was angry, but then because of what God does, he realizes that there is no God in, Israel, in the whole world except the God of Israel. And because Elisha was so discreet and so disconnected, um, all of the credit went to God. And Naaman responds with joy and gratitude and comes back and just is so delighted and gives a faithful testimony that he's going to worship God. And so there's a cool reversal in Naaman's life. So those are um, pretty cool aspects of the story, and there's other things we could mention. But what I wanted to focus on today is, where do we see Jesus in the story? Where do we see the gospel? As a little boy, I heard this story many times in Sunday school, and it was intriguing to me. And we're all most struck by Naaman's uh, unwillingness to, to do what he was told to do. And uh, we would count the number of times he would dip in the river. And I almost think that in some ways we kind of got the idea that Naaman was cured because of his works. But really, when you think about it, Naaman didn't get cured because of his works of righteousness, of dipping seven times. What Naaman really did was he submitted to God's instruction, and he humbly bowed himself below the requirement, below what he thought the requirement should be, and he humbled himself and did it God's way. And so Naaman didn't do any work, really. He just received the gift, and the faith that he trusted God was demonstrated by is dipping in the river seven times. And God's effectiveness was immediate. It was interesting, too, that it wasn't um, one-seventh of it going away each time, but until the seventh dip, the leprosy was still there. And on the seventh time he came up, it was gone. So very interesting for sure. But let's look for Jesus in the story. The first thing I want to point out is that this is a story where the prophet is rejected by his own people. Notice here right away that this whole, a lot of the purpose of this is to show the king of Israel, the son of Ahab, Joram, the son of Jezebel, um, that he was not trusting in God and the whole mechanism by which it all went around. So as soon as the king of Israel read the letter from the king of Aram, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? And so he interprets the whole thing as all about him and also see, and, uh, egocentric. And, and it's true, he can't kill and bring back to life. He cannot cure leprosy. He is not God. He cannot do those things. But instead of trusting God, instead of trusting Elisha, he refuses to trust Elisha because he knew that to trust Elisha would also be to bow the knee to, to Elisha's God and the true God. And so he did not want to do that. And so then when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So here's a case where the prophet tells the king of Israel, you should know that there's a prophet in Israel, and you are so small of faith that you won't even acknowledge that I'm here. Send him to me, and I will show him that there's a prophet in Israel. This reminds me, of, again, of, um, of Jesus' experience in Luke chapter 4. In the book of Luke, after Jesus went out into the desert and was tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights, and he comes back, and he comes to his own hometown in Nazareth, and he, he picks up the scroll, and he, wrote, he, he read from it a passage from Isaiah, and then he, and we pick it up here in verse 20, he rolled up the scroll after he had read it, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Here's this young man. 
this 30-year-old this man sitting in their presence. They've known him almost all their lives. And he's going to say something. They're watching and they're watching. And Jesus says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am the one that Isaiah was talking about. I'm the one who fulfills this prophecy. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And they started to just, they just couldn't believe they were amazed. And so their amazement starts to turn into questioning. It just doesn't make sense. And Jesus picks up on it. He says, Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Remember when on the cross, he said, if you're the, if you're the Messiah, save yourself. Come down from the cross. Physician, heal yourself. And then you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Come do some magic tricks for us, Jesus. Do some great works. You did them everywhere else. We want to see them too. And so they don't understand who Jesus is. They, they don't realize that there's a prophet. That he's the great prophet. He's the prophet greater than Moses. He's the greater son of David. He's the Messiah. He's God the Son. And he's right in their presence. And he says, truly I tell you, he continued, prophets are not accepted in their hometowns. All right, and the King James, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown. And so they took offense at him. And he told them that you took offense at him. He says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Remember back in Elijah's day with all the famine in the land? Yet Elijah was not sent to any of those, any of the widows of Israel, but he was sent to a widow in Zarephath, a, a, a Gentile woman in the region of Sidon. And so why is Jesus saying that? What he's saying is here's a case where Elijah could have gone to many widows, but they, were, they would not have accepted him. And so God sent him to a foreigner. You see, the people would reject a prophet in their own hometown. They would reject a prophet because he's not special. He's not an expert. We know too much about him. And then look at this. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So that's the story we just read. And this Naaman the Syrian is an example to us that while there were many people with leprosy who could have come to Elisha and said, oh, please, please, have, I'll give you anything. Please um, have me be cured from my leprosy. There were many that could have. None of them did. Only Naaman the Syrian. Only an outsider. And what does that tell us about ourselves? What does that tell us about these people? And all the people of the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of the town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Why were they so mad? Why, why did they so overreact? Because Jesus was calling them out for their lack of faith. And their lack of faith combined with the insult that they, he, they were hearing. What they were hearing Jesus say is, they're outsiders, those Gentiles, they're better than you. And they could not stand such thoughts. They could not, they, nothing could be further from the truth in their minds. They were more superior than all the Gentiles. And so they were so angry at Jesus and they, th they wanted to throw him off a cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. And so Jesus was a prophet that was rejected by his own people in the same way that Elisha was rejected by all the lepers of Israel. And it's just only name and the prophet that he was able to be cured by. Well, it looks like I get some rain hitting the window, so I hope that's not too distracting for you. It's not for me. 
The second uh, part of the story, the second way I see Jesus in the story is that um, Elisha takes a distant posture with a Gentile. I'm not sure how to say it another way, but he, he just acts sort of distant, sort of cool, and sort of uh, offish, uh, cold shoulder-ish to Naaman. So remember in the story, Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. And so there's this, there's this sense in which Elisha won't give Naaman the time of day. And maybe that's because um, he's a Gentile. Maybe Elisha's trying to do something. Maybe try, Elisha's showing Naaman about himself. And maybe Elisha's showing us about ourselves. Maybe Elisha's trying to show us about um, the way that God works. And I have to say here that this is one of the things about Jesus that I find most perplexing sometimes. And that is the idea that Jesus so often doesn't answer his critics or those who come to him. He doesn't answer them as clearly as I would wish he would. He answers them with a riddle or he answers them in part. But Jesus is so wise and he knows what's in the hearts of everyone and he knows how to, how to draw out what the real motives are. Remember the rich man that came to him and wanted to be saved and, and Jesus asked him, well, what do you think? And he kept all the commandments and Jesus perceived that his real problem was a love for money. And so he says, you need to go sell everything you have. And the man wouldn't do it. And he walked away. And, and if, I was, if I'd have been there, I said, come on, come on, change your mind, change your mind. But Jesus just lets him go. There's something about the way God works that if you, we, and I, if you and I, if we will not respond to the light that God gives us, there is no obligation on God's part to give us more light and to show himself to us. And so Elisha on purpose takes this distant posture with a Gentile. And I see Jesus do that a number of times in the New Testament as well. Look at this story in Matthew chapter 15. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So way over in Sidon, that was the same area where the widow Zarephath was, remember? And so here a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. So look at this woman's confession. She knows who he is. She calls him Kyrios, Lord. And the Septuagint of that day was the translation of Lord God, L-O-R-D, Yahweh's name. And so this was a very high title, Lord. And they call him Son of David. Very few people recognize who Jesus was. We talked about that last week, how Paul um, preached in Acts 13 about Jesus' descendants. He was declared with power to be the Son of God. And he was a descendant of David. He was the one who fulfilled all the blessings to David. So these are really high titles. She's showing a lot of insight and a lot of faith. And she says, my daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. So her need is very great. So this Canaanite woman, a Gentile who's not part of the people of God, not the objects, to, not the ones to whom Jesus is supposed to come the first, and she comes with a great uh, confession and a great need. And look what Jesus does. Jesus did not even answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. So apparently she was persistent. She kept crying. And Jesus wouldn't even talk to her. And this distance is perplexing to us. What is Jesus doing? Why won't Elisha come out and talk to Naaman? Why won't Jesus talk to this woman? And finally he said, 
When they said, send her away, he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So Jesus came to his own, and his own um, received him not. But to as many as received him, he gave the power to become the sons of God. So Jesus' first ministry to was to his own people, and they rejected him. They have to reject him in order to fulfill scripture. That's how he would be crucified. But this woman says, and now before him, she says, Lord, help me, she said. Help me. Her need is so great that she's not even bothered by his refusal to pay attention or his supposed insult. And he replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. She says, yes, it is, Lord. It's right. She said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And so she, she instead of becoming angry or, or um, putting herself forward and saying, I've never been treated with so much disrespect. Instead of being offended, she admits the fact that she is just a lost person. She has nothing to offer. She is, as it were, as valuable as a dog. But she also points out and says, yes, it is right. It's okay. It's right to feed the children, but it's also right to throw crumbs off the table. Any gift you give me, Jesus, is more than I deserve. And so she's so grateful, and she wants him to help her. It's an amazing view of her heart. And again, I think maybe Jesus knew, and he was distant like this on purpose to reveal what's in her heart. I don't know. I, I'm embarrassed for Jesus sometimes because he does things this way, but I would not be a good PR agent for him. He does just fine by himself. He's the king of kings, and he knows what he's doing. And so he says, it is not right to take the children's meat. And then said, Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. He, he, the word term woman there, that's not a derogatory term. And he, he compliments her. You know, there's only a few people in the Bible that Jesus ever says has great faith. This is one of them. The other one is a centurion soldier whose, whose uh, servant was ill and, and in the servants, uh, the centurion says to Jesus, you don't need to come to my house. Just say the word. I'm under authority. I know what's going on. There's You just say the word. And Jesus said, wow, I've never seen such great faith. So the word great faith, the, the compliment of great faith is for this woman and for the centurion. And those are the only two. He says, your request has been granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Many times Jesus says to his disciples, you have little faith. Why won't you trust? Why won't you see? And here are these people from the outside. Sometimes an outsider has more insight into their need than anyone who's on the inside. And I think that's one of the things that we see in the story of Naaman. And so Naaman had great faith to even come to Elisha. And Naaman had great faith to listen to his servants and dip in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman had great faith, and because of that, he was cured. And here we see this woman with great faith, and her daughter was cured from the very hour. So I see Jesus in the story as a prophet who's rejected by his own people, just like Elisha. And I see Jesus as a, a person who, as a prophet, takes a distant posture with the Gentiles, but not in an unfair way, but in a loving and clear way to reveal the gospel to them. But then look at this, the foolish demands of the lost. We see in Naaman this horrible, uh, demanding nature that he has. Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot 
and cure me of my leprosy. I mean, he had this whole ritual all worked out, as I mentioned before, in his mind. He thought I would be, and he he probably even practiced what posture he would be in. It was, it was I'm paying for this service, and this is the service I expect. And so he came with this, these terrible demands. And then he goes on, he says, Arna, Abana, and Parfar, Farpar, the rivers in Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. So he's he's got um, national pride, maybe even some uh, you know ethnic pride here that his rivers are better than Israel's river. I could wash in them and be cleansed. There's nothing magical. There's nothing better about the Jordan River. And so he turned and went off in a rage. Isn't it something that people can come to God and ask for help, but God won't come to them in their terms and they get mad at him and will run away. If it doesn't go my way, I'm not going to come to you, Jesus. If you don't do it my way, I'm going to be angry. And so it's a terrible thing for us to be that way. Look what happened in Jesus' life. Some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We want you to do it our way. We want you to meet our little checklist so that you can prove who you are. And this is so sad because this has been after many miracles. They're just blinded. They don't want to see the signs he's already given. And so here they are asking for a sign. We need you to do a sign in our terms. We want you to come to us in our terms, not in yours. And Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus is predicting his death and resurrection. That's his sign. And the people of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment seat. Um, the, the people of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. So those people that Jonah, you know, Jonah well, was in the fish and came back, they repented at his preaching. And here I'm greater than Jonah, and you're asking for a sign. I've already given you many miraculous signs, and I'm greater than Jonah. And they, that generation, that people, the people of Nineveh will condemn you unto whom much is given, much is required. And you've been given the clear revelation of Jesus, the Son of Man, and have refused him. So Jesus is in the story that way, and we see the foolish demands of the lost. But the fourth way I want to see Jesus is that you cannot serve God in money. If there's anything you, one of the things you can glean from the story of Naaman is the role of money and the relationship to God. You can't really serve both. And Gehazi proved that out pretty well. Um, Notice here, the prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. And so Elisha's posture, Elisha's uh, answer to the to Naaman is, you, those are really great gifts, Thanks for, but no thanks, Naaman. I'm not taking them. I'm not going to have it said that you purchased your salvation. I'm not going to have it said that way. This is not a time for us to gather silver and gold. We don't need that. This is, God is in charge of everything. But then a few verses later, Gehazi starts thinking to himself, my master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean. You can see the racial, ethnic uh, hatred coming out in that statement too. And he said, by not accepting him from what he brought. So he wanted to give it to us, 
And so then he swears, my God, as surely as Yahweh lives, he makes an oath, I will run after him and get something from him. And so here Gehazi, in this, instead of being um, rejoicing at the glories of God's healing in Naaman's life and the wonder of it all, and that we didn't need money to survive, that God would take care of us, Gehazi can't think of anything but how much that gold and silver and those, all those clothes would be, how cool it would be to have some of that. And so Gehazi's heart is drawn toward money, and he misses God's plan for his life. He misses God's plan for the whole thing, and it's a, such a sad thing. He, he, he lies to Elisha, and he comes back and gets caught red-handed, and he walks away and gets all of Naaman's leprosy. He, he sold himself for that 75 pounds and 75 pounds, so 150 pounds of silver and two sets of clothing, and he loses his soul. Jesus would say, what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Uh, we know that Jesus encountered this a lot of times in his time on earth too. In the book of Luke chapter 16, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And the text capitalizes money here. It personifies you cannot serve the love of money. You cannot serve this world's treasures and God. You just can't have both. You're going to love one and hate the other, or hate the one and love the other. If you love God, money is not that important to you. You can live without it, you can use it, and you use it for his kingdom. But if you love money... God is not important to you, and you can live without God, and you'll use God for your ends. And so you either love God and use money, or you love money and use God. And that's the sad state of affairs. And look what Jesus, what happens next. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this, and they were sneering at Jesus. Ah, oh, he doesn't know what's going on. Doesn't he understand that when you love God, you get more money? That's why we're in this whole thing. God has to bless us with more and more riches. And so this prosperity style of gospel is that God is a means to financial gain. I'm going to get more and more because I do what God wants me to do, and he gives me power over other people. And they sneered at Jesus for his attitude that you would ever not love money. And they were wrong. And Jesus said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. You think, Gehazi, that that 150 pounds of silver is going to make you happy? That's detestable in God's sight. It's not a person. It's a thing. It's an idol. You really think you need those two sets of clothes? You're going to wear those? Every time you put them on, you can remember what a fast one you pulled on Naaman, the Aramean. And those things are detestable in God's sight. You see, when we love an idol, when we put our hearts on something other than God, when we put value there first, we lose who God is. We lose the beauty of him. And God knows what we need in our hearts. And so these things that people highly value, the treasures of this earth, those are detestable in God's sight. And we learn that it's as detestable as Naaman's leprosy.
Well, those are the four things I saw in the gospel, in the, or in this story that reminded me of Jesus and the gospel in general. And I, I hope you listened well. I hope it meant, uh, meant to you what it's meant to me. But I did have, uh, I wanted to ask those same things in a so what kind of format. What, uh, so what about this? What about you and I? Are you and I, are we rejecting Jesus as too familiar? Have we grown up in church and we have heard all the stories and we know that Jesus does this and Jesus does that? Are we rejecting him because he's from our own background, our own hometown? Um, are we doing the same thing that the king of Israel did and not wanting to honor God because he was so familiar? Not wanting to honor the prophet because he knew that to do so would be to bow the knee to Yahweh. You see, you and I are, one of the big dangers is that we can be so close to God that we actually miss him. We can know the stories so well that we fail to hear them for ourselves. And we fail to understand that we are blinded. Um, Isaiah would say, these people honor me with their lips. They, we know all the words to say. We know how to pray the right way. But their hearts are far from me. And so let's not reject Jesus just because he's too familiar. There's infinitely more to learn about him. The other thing is, does Jesus seem distant to you? Is there things that Jesus says that confuses you or that bothers you? You know, instead of walking away, instead of rejecting him and being amazed, what you and I should do is pursue him further and say, yes, Lord, you're right. It, it, but but even the dogs are willing are should get the crumbs off the table. We should humble ourselves, and we should be responsive to Jesus, even if He seems distant. You see, faith is trusting that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And so, God may not uh, give you what you think. He may not answer your questions the way you want. He may not answer your prayers as fast as you want. But He wants to see whether you're really pursuing Him, and Jesus is that way too. And so. If Jesus seems distant to you, maybe that's a suggestion that you need to follow more closely. You need to accept what you've heard and continue on. We have no right, if we reject the first part of the revelation from him, we have no right to pursue further. We have no right to get more information from Jesus. If, he, we, if we won't accept him where he's at, if we won't accept the part he has told us. And so if, God, if Jesus seems distant, if God seems distant, we need to consider how we're looking at things. And then are we coming to God on our own terms? Do we have this big plan made out? I'm going to live a certain way and God's going to bless me a certain way. And then after these many years, this is going to happen. Are we, are we constructing God on our own image? Is he meeting our agenda? Has God become our servant? Is he the one who's going to follow our agenda? I've made up this plan for my life and God, yeah, you have some high demands. I'll pay those demands. But as long as you do these things for me, I'm going to be happy with you. I'll serve you. Or vice versa. Because I serve you, you have to do these things for me. That's what I expect. Is that what we're doing? Are we coming to him on our terms? Is he a slave to us? How dare we think that the almighty God would be a slave to us? He's a person. He's an infinite person. He's the creator of all things. We are his slaves, not the other way around. We need to come to him on his terms. No wonder we miss him. Because we get angry and walk away when he doesn't do what we want us to. You see, if I make God in my own image, if I make God according to my plan, how small of a God is that? Is that if, if, he's, if he does all the things that I want him to do, then what is he going to do when I'm in desperate need? How, the God that I construct out of my own mind can't meet my needs when my 
world is in bigger trouble than I can solve. When my life is in bigger, when I'm in bigger trouble, when there's a, when I'm a tight strait that's so difficult that I can't solve my problem, the God of my own construction can't help me then. Only the true God who's greater than myself can help me. And so in order to know that greater God, in order to know the true God, I need to come to him on his terms and recognize that I am the creature and he is the creator. And then finally, am I struggling with too much love for money? Am I using money or am I using God? Am I loving God and using money or am I loving money and using God? Which way is it in my life? And it's a, it's a strong indicator of where we're at. How much time do we worry about our money? And if you looked at my, my checkbook and all my spending, would you be able to tell that I love Jesus? Would I be able to tell that you love Jesus? I hope so. All I know is Jesus makes it very clear that we cannot serve both him and money. So I hope that you would take warning from these um, words and, and that we would apply them to our lives carefully. Father in heaven, thank you so much for healing me of my leprosy. I know that I would have tried to fix it my own way, and I would have done so many things in my own heart, but thank you so much for the Lord Jesus doing everything for me. And Jesus went into the Jordan and, and, observed, and uh, uh, underwent all of the suffering. He drank the full cup of your wrath so that he could wash me clean. He became poor so that I would be rich. He became, um, nobody honored him. He became rejected so that I would be accepted in you. All of the things that Jesus gave up, he gave those things up for us so that we would be exalted in your presence. What a glorious gift, Jesus, that you've given to us. Help us to be your kind of people. Help us to love you most and love you with all our hearts. And thank you for washing away our sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about our church, online resources, and in-person services, our website is the best place to check, wpbiblefellowship.org. In the meantime, keep your eyes on Jesus and may you grow in his grace.